Our scripture this evening is found in Psalm 69, verses 1 through 12. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 12. You know, very often we wait until we have tried everything before we cry out to God. But what God's Word teaches us is that we are to cry out to God in all of our normal situations and all of the things that are going on in our life. And we are to cry out to God to rescue us, to save us in everything that we find. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 12, and in honor of the reading of God's Word, let's stand. Save me, O God. For the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I, uh, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. O oh God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O oh Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through you, or through me, O oh Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O oh God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Drunkards, let us pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you that you prompted David to write down this very raw psalm, that you would prompt him to write down how he was feeling so that it would be useful in our lives as well. Father God, we love you so much, and we ask that as you illumine the heart and mind of David when you gave to him this perfect and infallible word, that you would illumine our hearts and minds as well. Father God, we love you with all of our soul. We trust you with all of our heart, and we offer to you our love, our lives, and this prayer. In and through the name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Master. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. Over the past few months, we've been looking at the Psalms during our evening worship time. And over the past few weeks, uh, honestly, it's been a couple of months, we looked at Psalm 119. We went through Psalm 119 very methodically. We went through it. Uh, verse by verse, I told you uh, at the end of last week's sermon that I had seen some pastors that uh, had preached all of some, Psalm 119 in one or two sermons, and I just don't see how you could do it. 
uh, I, I just don't see how you could give justice to what God was saying in Psalm 119 in one or, or, or two uh, sermons. Throughout the, that, that psalm, we saw the psalmist struggling with persecution. And it, it wasn't necessarily, listen, the persecution that he was undergoing was not the kind of persecution that says, you're a believer and I'm not, therefore I'm going to persecute you. The persecution that the, the psalmist that wrote Psalm 119 was undergoing was, you're a different kind of believer than I am. You do things different. Your love for God is different. Or, more than likely, you are on fire for God, and I'm not, and that bothers me. David is saying the same thing in this psalm. And, and, and I've told you in the past that, uh, that there's a fancy word that refers to these psalms. And uh, honestly, I was going to preach uh, an entire sermon. There's about 7 to 11 uh, imprecatory psalms in the psalms. But, but as I was studying over this, God said, I want you to go a different direction after tonight. Okay. Uh, because it would be awful, uh, kind of depressing for us to uh, to spend the next seven or eight sermons. And as you see, we're not making it all the way through Psalm one or sixty nine tonight. Uh, but it would anyway. Let's begin with a definition of imprecatory. Imprecatory psalms are those psalms that invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies or those perceived as enemies of God. Now, I want you to understand, these psalms are not directed at the Assyrians. They're not directed at the Babylonians. This is David, okay? Israel is is nearing its zenith as, as a kingdom under David's ministry. There are no external threats to the kingdom of Israel. There are no unbelievers. Certainly, uh, the, they had skirmishes with, with those tribes that we've read about in, 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 uh, in Genesis and in Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and First and Second Kings and Chronicles and First and Second Samuel. I mean, there are minor skirmishes, but, but it, the, you know, the skirmishes that David was going through uh, with his kingdom would be like Mexico deciding to attack the United States. Okay, and I'm not being mean against Mexico. They just don't have an offensive army. Okay, their army is a defensive army. And, and, and so David is not threatened from outside. Where he is facing threats is from inside, from those that don't agree with him. And at the end of the day, and and again, we're not going to be able to make it all the way through this psalm tonight. But at the end of the day, in all of the imprecatory psalms, the psalmist comes to the point where they trust God to be God. Okay? They, They state their case. They ask God to take action. And then they rest... In God's power. Again, verse 32, 
The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. So you see what God was doing in David's life. He was facing a difficult situation. And God allowed David to be real with him, to be honest with him. Listen, beloved, how many times are we not real with God? I mean, can I tell you a secret? God had the day you were going to bring this to him in prayer already on his calendar before you even knew you were going to bring it to him. He knew that you were going to come. He knew what you were going to say. Why can we not just be real with God? That's what David is trying to teach us. He's trying to show us that God is big enough that he will allow us to be real with him. During our time on earth, we are going to encounter trials. Isn't that something you love about Jesus? That Jesus didn't just come and say, listen, guys, if you'll trust me, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Don't worry. Be happy. Okay? Jesus always was brutally honest with his disciples and with us. James tells us in James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. You know sometimes how you can measure your effectiveness for the kingdom of God? With how much resistance you're experiencing. If the enemy is leaving you alone then that should be a scary time. Now, obviously we know that there are a variety of reasons that trials can come into our lives. Satan is behind some of them. Some of them are the natural consequence of living in a sin-cursed world. At times... We cause our own problems. Can I get a witness? <laughs> you know, doggone. Sometimes you just go, well, I thought that was going to turn out completely different. <laughs> okay. And if I'd have thought about that thing before I went into it, you know, it might not have turned out the way that I uh, thought it or, or the way that it did uh, turn out. But let me tell you something, if we are totally devoted to Jesus Christ and live in faithful obedience to God's word, we can expect persecution. Jesus warned that we would be hated, persecuted, and slandered. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 10. Blessed are those, don't you wish, oh, I don't know, there might be something on our bulletin about that. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, there was a, uh, some talk back uh, a few months ago that the Commandant of the Marine Corps was being pressed to uh, increase the number of troops that were under his control. Many of you all may not know that the size of the Marine Corps is officially limited by Congressional Act. Okay? Marine Corps is and will always be the smallest of our armed forces. And so there was talk of, especially in the Brainiac MOSs, computers, communications, satellites, things of that nature, that people that had college degrees would then be brought into the Marine Corps and, and put in positions with, within the Marine Corps. Do you see the problem? They were not going to have to go through boot camp. They were just going to be able to come in and apply just like they were applying for a job with Walmart, and, and the Marine Corps was going to say, you're hired, we're making you, oh, I don't know, an E-5. Or we're making you a lieutenant. Come on in. The whole problem for that would be for every Marine that has ever served, we all have one thing in common, and that is Marine Corps boot camp. Okay? And it is what builds that esprit de corps. We know what to expect because we've all been there. I said all of that to say this. Jesus says they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They persecuted me. How is it that you believe that you're going to experience something completely different than everybody God has sent to call people to righteousness? Paul plainly warned us of this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, I would presume that Christians are in that subset. And Peter also warned us about that in 1 Peter 3, 14 through 4, 19. We're not going to take time to read all of that tonight, but I encourage you to take a look at that when you get home. Psalm 69 is a prayer in persecution or a prayer in response to persecution. Obviously, we're told that David wrote it, but we don't know what prompted it. We don't know what was going on in David's life. But we do know from verse 17 that he says, Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. He is saying to God, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. God, I need you to move. And so he cried out to God. Now, Psalm 69 is also a messianic psalm. 
It is one that is frequently quoted in the New Testament. Next to Psalm 22 and, and 110, Psalm 69 is the most referenced psalm in the New Testament. And in this psalm, God calls us to turn to Him and Him alone for all of our problems. Verses 1 through 4. David was trapped in a situation where he was being accused of doing certain things. He was being persecuted by those closest to him, and he desperately cried out to God to save him. He described himself as a drowning man. The waters have threatened my life. And he questioned whether he would be able to survive. His difficulties were intensified by the discouragement that set into his soul. He was stuck in the thick mire, and the floodwaters of distress were rapidly overtaking him. He felt like he would not be able to bear up. And we're going to see what concerned him the most in a couple of verses. He was exhausted. And that worsened his situation. He had cried out to God for help until he was parched and could cry out, no longer. He waited and waited for God to answer his desperate cries. But no answer came. Beloved, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where you cried out and you cried out and you cried out and you cried out and you weren't even sure that your prayers were making it past the roof of your mouth? Maybe it was over a situation in your life. Maybe it was over the soul of a person in your life that you wanted to see saved and you kept praying and praying and praying and it didn't look like anything was changing. He said that many people hated him and were making false accusations against him. They want to destroy him. Psalm 69 begins with a familiar lesson. When we are facing overwhelming adversity, we need to cry out for God's help. Because perhaps the reason this lesson is so frequently repeated in the Psalms is that we are too slow to apply it. We tend to take matters in our own hands. And rely on our own resources. And only after exhausting our resources do we then take it to God. And cast our burden on Him. Spurgeon described several kinds of, of deep mire the believer may sink in. He described the deep mire of unbelief, the deep mire of trial and difficulty, the deep mire of inward corruption, the deep mire of the devil's temptation and oppression. What kind of mire have we allowed into our lives, beloved? Jesus specifically referred to verse 4 in John 15:25, where he said, they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. They hated me 
without a cause. Here's the real problem among the many who hated David. Were some who went beyond the feelings of hatred to active efforts to destroy him. Verses 5 through 6. In many of the other Psalms, David protests his innocence. He says, God, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. All of this is happening and it's out of my control. But as David is writing this psalm, perhaps he's older as he writes this psalm, and he knew that he was not perfect, and he was capable of making mistakes, and he was willing to acknowledge anything that he had done that had contributed to this. And for this reason, he confessed his foolish and sinful tendencies to God. God knew David's weaknesses. He knew that the king was fully capable of foolish behavior. Like all of us, he was prone to sin. He didn't always act wisely. He didn't always obey God's law. But he was wise enough to know that he could not hide his sin from God. If he was guilty of some trespass, God already knew that. And it would be useless for David to claim innocence before God. But here's what really bothered David. Verse 6. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me. God, don't let my testimony, don't let the way that I live my life lead anyone one scintilla of a millimeter further away from you. That's what bothered David. Is that those that didn't know God or those that only had a casual relationship with God would see how David was responding and it would lead them away. One commentator said it ought to be the prayer of every Christian, especially if he be a minister of the gospel, that his sufferings in the world may not give just offense to the brethren or the church. David also knew, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, a lot of people will believe everything they hear. They won't bother to see whether it's true or not. If it comes from somebody, they will just believe that it was true. David was concerned that the accusation against him might be a stumbling block to others. And he feared that his situation might bring reproach on those who genuinely followed God. He prayed earnestly that those who wait on or hope in God would not be ashamed because of him. Sometimes we just need to go before God and get honest with him. We just need to go before God and pour out our heart to Him. We have to remember that we cannot deceive God. 
He is always aware of everything that we say and do. We cannot hide our sin from him. Let me tell you something, beloved. As Jesus hung on the cross, he died specifically and individually for every sin that we will ever commit. Even ones that we don't know we're going to commit yet. Proverbs 28.13, I kind of like to see Proverbs 28.13 as the 1 John 1.9 of the Old Testament. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. We cannot be reconciled to God until we deal with those issues in our lives. And refusing to deal with our sin and mistakes will only intensify our difficulties. Verses 7 through 12. David opens his heart. He continues to open his heart and pour it out to God. And and, and he finally comes to the understanding, because for your sake I have borne reproach. He said, listen. Isn't David one of your favorite guys in all of the Bible? I don't know about you, but David's one of my favorite guys in all of the Bible. Okay? He was this kid that loved God so much that he went out to take food to his older brothers. And Goliath came out and began his morning talking smack about Yahweh. And David looks at King Saul and he looks at his brothers and he says, y'all going to take this off this guy? You going to let him talk about Yahweh this way? Somebody give me something. I'm going to go out there and put a stop to this. And Saul said, David, you too little. You can't do that. And David said, listen, Bubba. I'm sorry, King Bubba. Okay. I'm going to do this one way or the other because nobody, nobody talks about my God that way and lives. And Saul says, well, if you, if you, if you got your heart set on it, then, then here, put my armor on. Y'all all have, 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 have with your young children, seen them maybe when you got home from work, you sat down and took your shoes off. And your little child came and thought it would be so cool to, to get into mommy or daddy's shoes and try to walk around the house. And it, it, it just looks so funny to see this little tiny child's foot in an adult shoe and them trying to, to walk around. Can you imagine how David looked with all that armor on? He probably was standing there going, somebody hold me up, stuff is heavy, get this off of me. And Saul says, well, here's my spear. And David goes, what thing's bigger than I am? How am I ever going to pick that up? And so he just throws it down and starts out to the the battlefield. And Saul says, what are you going to fight him with? 
And David says, you let God worry about that. And he gets out there and, and, and Goliath, you know, begins laughing at this little pup that's come out. And all of a sudden we hear, David had defeated this man, the Saul and all of Israel's armies wouldn't even go into battle against. And when they got back to town, the girls began, they wrote a song about David. Saul has slayed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Now, if you're a narcissist like Saul, it is own. Okay? It is now officially own. You don't talk about someone other than the king in those kind of terms. And so Saul set out to kill David. And David, you'll remember if you read through the the Old Testament, David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. And David, even to his own men, said, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. God, this man is trying to kill me. He is actively trying to kill me. He's thrown a spear at me twice. Okay? He is actively trying to kill me, and yet I'm going to turn that whole situation over to God. And Saul will die how and when God wants him to die. And that same zeal lacked his, or, or characterized his later life. You remember that he danced exuberantly in the streets as the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into town, cost him his wife. His love for God cost him his wife. And his passion, his passion was, wait a minute, God. Here I am living in this opulent, wonderful palace. And all you got is a tent. I want to build a house worthy of your honor. I want to build a house unlike any other house. David, when it came time to go to church, he was there early and he stayed late. He loved to go to church. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And so David came to understand. And God had worked him through this. That it wasn't because of David's sin. It was because of David's commitment to God. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Don't you think that by this time in David's life. Every time he, he did something, somebody would look at him and say, 
What about that whole Bathsheba thing? You know, David, who you think you are trying to tell us to, 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 to have a heart for God when, when you're an adulterer? No, oh, did I forget to mention that you had your, your lover's husband put to death? And David just said, you know what? I'm not going to let that consume my life because zeal, verse 9, for your house has consumed me. Listen, you want to bring up my past sin? Fine. Bring it up. I know about it. I know about it. It's not going to bother me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Have you ever tried to share your faith with somebody and the person you were sharing your faith with was mad? I don't know about you. I don't like people to be mad at me. Okay? I mean, it's just my personality. I don't like people mad at me. What I've come to learn is that they're not mad at me. They're mad at God. And I just happen to be God's representative where they can take that anger out on me. Okay? The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. <laughs> You know, it, it would be like we gave an altar call and somebody came down to the altar and poured their heart out to God. They did business with God. And God just inhabited their, their, their time on the altar with Him. And, and after the service, they were kind of walking around and there was a group somewhere talking. And somebody said, well, it's about time they went to the altar. About time they got down on their knee and got right with God. That's what they were saying about David. They were saying, it's about time. About time you got your soul right with God. About time you started fasting and, and doing all of that. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Have you ever seen somebody walk out and, and, and the way they were dressed, it, you, you just had to drop your head? Because you knew if you didn't, you was going to break out laughing. Okay? When David would go out into public with sackcloth on, they would go, <laughs> look at him. Who does he think he is? In fact, boys, y'all that, that are sitting down at the gate, why don't you just and these are the elders of the community. These are the leaders in the community. They're talking smack about David. And he's become a song that the drunkards made up. May God help us to be like David. So in love with him and aflame with passion for him that we simply do not care what others think or say. Luke 9.26 Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus says we need to be absolutely on fire for him. And if we openly worship God and stand for Him, we're going to pay a price. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 12, what's going to happen? Rejoice and be glad. 
for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we are afflicted for Jesus' sake, we enter into an intimacy with him like no other. Let me tell you the secret, beloved. Jesus will never be everything to us until he's all that we've got. He will never be everything to us until he's all that we've got. Philippians 3, 8 and 10. Here's how Paul put it. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Let me ask you a question, beloved. Has a police officer ever stopped you on McDonald Highway and said, listen, I noticed you were driving exactly 35 miles an hour. Congratulations. Thank you so much for that. Okay? You don't get praise simply for obeying the law. Anybody can obey the law. Okay? And Paul is saying, I don't want a righteousness that's just this rigid set of rules and regulations derived from the law. But I want a relationship with Jesus that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God. In other words, it's His righteousness on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Jesus was all that Paul had. And so Jesus was everything to him. And when we do that, we qualify ourselves to share in Christ's glory, Romans 8, 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified, with him when his glory is revealed we who shared in his sufferings will have a measure of joy that exceeds that of those who did not suffer for his sake a joy that is greater than any we have ever known peter said in first peter 4:13 but to the degree that you share the sufferings of christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Sounds easy enough, right? How do we do it? Romans 8.18 I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Brother, God's still working in our lives. He's still, if we're still breathing, He's still working. He's still drawing us to Him. Will we cry out to God to save us and to lead us and to bear up and to do what God has called us to do and praise Him along with heaven and earth 
and the seas and everything that moves in them. Will we cry out to God to save us?